For Dirty Linen Summer Series, we are catching up with interesting people that I encounter on my journeys. One of those is Daniel Goldstein, who's from New York. He's in Australia to, uh, hang on, I'll just do that again. For Dirty Linen Summer Series, we are catching up with interesting people that I encounter along the way. One of those is Daniel Goldstein. He's American. He's in Melbourne to as Associate Director for the musical Come From Away, which I was lucky enough to see in its first iteration here in Melbourne. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for coming along to have a chat. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really my pleasure. Now, uh, we meet in interesting ways these days, and we encountered each other through Instagram, didn't we? I think so, yeah. Um, you had come to see the show, and I had been reading your your stuff in the paper about restaurants, and so I was so excited when you had seen the show, so I reached out. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we've really connected on is that we will travel for food, and we'll construct journeys around the restaurants that we want to go to and the food experiences that we want to have, right? Yeah, that's certainly the way that my wife and I travel. I tend to uh, plan trips based on what restaurants I would like to go to and she sort of figures out the museums and cultural activities around that. <laughs> well, you definitely need food to, you know, have energy for museum traipsing. Um, and we're going to hear one of your stories about one of the restaurants that you made great efforts to get to. But before we hear about that, I'd love you just to talk us through your 2020 and just explain how you come to find yourself back in Melbourne. Well, let's see. Uh, uh, 2020 started off to be a really incredible year. I am I, I uh, work as a writer and director of theatre. Uh, um, and so in March of 20, well, in January of 2020, I started rehearsals for a musical that I wrote with my late friend, Michael Friedman, called Unknown Soldier, which we had put up together when he was still living at, at the Williamstown Theatre Festival in Massachusetts, a sort of renowned summer theater festival and we were doing it at playwrights horizons in 2020 in new york city uh and we started rehearsal we did it and then in march of 2020 the pandemic began or the pandemic shut down uh broadway and theater in new york city so my wife and kids and i moved ourselves up to western massachusetts where we have a family house and sort of restarted our lives from there, sublet our Brooklyn apartment and um, just started living there for the time being kids in school. Uh, I also had another world premiere musical, at, a new one at the Williamstown Theatre Festival that was supposed to happen this past summer that we instead recorded for Audible, which should be out and available to everyone on um, August, uh, sorry, April 1st, which is called Row. So when Come From Away decided, when Australia, who has done a much better job at controlling the pandemic than we in the United States have, uh, when Melbourne and Victoria was set to reopen, we uh, were called to come out here to restart the show. We have three new actors going into the play and two new standbys so that we have extra people in case people are sick, they don't come to work. Um, so we had a lot of work to do to put the show back up. So we start again on January 19th. And here I am. It's so exciting to think about theatre being back in the city. It's definitely such a feature of Melbourne's life. You know, we, we really pride ourselves on on the theatre that people can see and, of course, the restaurants that people can visit before and after the theatre. And I think Come From Away is going to be the first big show that uh, that restarts in the city. Is that right? That is correct. It's um, amazing. 
it is quite amazing. And it's, you know, as, as we post things on Instagram and, and do things like that, our friends back in the States are sort of gobsmacked at what we're doing here. Like people walking around and out and about and in restaurants and certainly uh, going to test cricket for the first time in my whole life yesterday um, (laughs) was really like to be in a stadium with even, you know, even a quarter filled, um, is, you know, something that in the States we have no sense of right now. Yeah, we're so lucky. Um, so you had to, I mean, it's not, it, people can't just jump on a plane and land in Australia and start wandering around. Um, can you explain how you got back here? Yes. So we had to have, um, our producers had to put in uh, uh, through their work with the government, which they'd been you know, working very uh, closely with to determine when and how we could reopen. Uh, They had to apply for special exemptions uh, uh, for the ban on on foreign travelers. Then we had to get our visas. Then we had to book plane tickets, which was very difficult and I believe very costly. And then um, we entered into hotel quarantine in Sydney for two weeks, um, which quite honestly, wasn't so bad. And I know that it's been the, the you know, I, I've joined a couple of Facebook groups about it. And I know it's been very contentious uh, among the, the Australian population. But, you know, from a foreign uh, perspective, the idea that a government would take the stop of the pandemic so seriously is really gratifying. So I was happy to do whatever I could. Mm. So there are Facebook groups with uh, populated by people who are in quarantine or in who... quarantine trying to get into quarantine yeah there's two that i joined and i'm sure there are more i think people have started ones you know hotel specific i mean there are a lot of complaints <laughs> about the food which quite frankly is really bad for the most part um <laughs> it just you know there's a lot of like meat pies and then you'll get some sort of steamed but they're not good meat pies they've just sort of so you have to reheat them it's everything is just not it, it's it's sort of bulk catering it's not yeah food it's not room service so it's it's just not that good so i did i i was lucky enough to have a a a hotel with a working kitchen and fridge and um i had a phone which i could use to order uber eats so that was also very helpful yeah, I think I think the, there's differ, differences in the type of quarantine. I think that in Melbourne at the moment, it's pretty hard lockdown and you can't order in food. You can't have care packages delivered. I think I'm right in saying that. So I guess it's, um, I don't know, it all, it, I'm sure it's pretty bad. And I'm sure like, <laughs> I don't know, I, I feel if I was there, I'd feel like day nine would be like a real struggle for me. But uh, I think, yeah, we can probably all agree that it's in a really good cause. And um, yeah, it's... I think that it's also contentious to have people coming here who aren't, you know, returning Australians. Um, but I think it is really important to get the city's cultural life back. And of course, it's a domestic tourism driver as well. Perhaps not, perhaps not so much from Sydney at the moment, but uh, people do travel to see shows and to, um, yeah, and to spend spend time and money in Melbourne. So I think it's really exciting that you guys are, are opening and that there's been a way to get you back here. Daniel, one of the things that I love about Come From Away is that it's a, it, well, it's a story about planes that are diverted uh, at the time of 9-11 uh, to an island in Newfoundland, right? And the thing is, like, what it says to me is that people are basically good. And I think that's one of the things that I've felt through 2020, even though it's been such an insane year. I think I've felt through it that People are basically good. Sometimes they get scared and do really dumb stuff, but 
usually they're pretty nice. And it's a really warm and heartfelt show. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that it's it's certainly what we hope for our best <laughs> our best moments to be. Um, I will be honest that that 2020 has me doubting that that is the case in the United States. But even in the worst of it, I've seen some incredible stuff happen and some incredible acts of generosity to help people out and to find ways of getting through this this crisis and come from a way you know, as the story of these, these, it's, it's really the story of 7,000 people who landed in a town of, of 9,000 um, and all had to be taken care of for five days uh, in the midst of what at that point was, you know, the biggest sort of global crisis that had happened in many years. Um, and so it is that it really does tell us the story of kindness, uh, of intrinsic kindness rather than forced kindness. It is, and when you talk to the actual, you know, it's based on a true story. All the people are are real. They all actually came here for the opening of it in in um, in July of 2019. And you know, if you ask them what what happened and why they did what they did, they just sort of said, "Well, we didn't really do much. We just made some sandwiches." It's sort of who <laughs> they are. Um, yeah. And it's funny that we're talking about it on this podcast because really their entry into everything. Um, you know, actually much like my Jewish upbringing is, you know, you welcome with food. And that's how they, they really took care of each other that they, the first thing they did was try to figure out how much and how and where and who could cook. So they made sandwiches and brought stuff in and found ways of feeding people. Mm. Yeah, well, anyone who hasn't seen the show, and even if you have, I reckon, um, check it out. It's It'll be exciting to be in the theatre, first of all, but it is a really heartwarming and affirming show. Um, so, Daniel, let's talk more about food. Um, <laughs> you told me an amazing story about your time in Japan, and I would love you to share that with us. Sure. Well, I, you know, I spent a lot of I've spent a lot of time in Japan doing doing shows first in um, Tokyo doing a musical, and then the second time uh, doing a play. I've subsequently um, spent a great number of months in Osaka uh, at Universal Studios working in the Harry Potter part of the theme park, and you know, actually as a food town, Osaka is really. Um, kind of a sleeper it's pretty extraordinary and people don't think of it but it's 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 a remarkable place but when i was in tokyo the second time it was 2013 i had just seen the film uh, jiro dreams of sushi and i was desperate to go there but it's generally an impossible reservation and they've actually now taken themselves out of they've made themselves even more and so they've taken themselves out of the michelin star rating so that they could be an entirely basically private restaurant. But when I was there the first time you could still get in or, or so I thought if you called on a certain day. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to that uh, sort of like concert ticket reservation system. So I, I had my interpreter Chinatsu-san call um, the day it went on and she called and called and called and couldn't get through. And then when she finally got through, they had nothing. Um, I, I called a friend who had uh, the, the show I had previously done there as part part of Toho, which is a you know a multinational conglomerate making producing films, and they had their foreign relations department call. They couldn't get a reservation. My producer called. They couldn't get a reservation. I just wanted anything to go there <laughs> for one, you know. And the meals are short; like they couldn't slot me in for the forty minutes that it takes for 
18 pieces of sushi and a, and a slice of melon, which is your whole meal. And um, I, I, I just, I went, I was despondent. And so I had this idea when I got there that I would sort of appeal to them personally, because what, what did I have to lose? So I wrote a letter um, talking about the film and, and his, his sense of, of sushi as always striving for perfection. And, you know, what I love about theater as opposed to film is that it's ephemeral, that it, it exists um, in the moment and then it's gone. And, uh, you know, one of my professors in, in university um, said that the reason that flowers are the perfect gift for opening night is that they don't last. Mm. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and so I wrote him a letter explaining all of this and why his, his uh, uh, desire to spend his whole life achieving perfection in fish, in rice, in temperature, in presentation is so much about what I'm here to do. And... Um, my interpreter hand wrote it on her stationery, and I, I attached a, 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 um, a brochure from the play and an article that had been written about me and the, at the star of the show in one of the local magazines. And I put it in an envelope, and on my day off, I, I walked down to Ginza and uh, uh, went into the subway station um, and went down to his restaurant which was actually genuinely hard to find, especially if you don't speak or read, you know, kanji. And then, mm. um, but I sort of followed, you know, thank God for the internet, I followed the, the pictures from someone's blog post about it. I went, oh, that <laughs> looks familiar. And then that looks familiar. So I was sort of able to do it. And then I opened the screen. I mean, it's a tiny restaurant in the corner of a hallway of an office building. And you open it on the right side is sort of a little sort of coat check where they take the money. And then there is a, a sushi bar that seats 10 people and that's it. Um, and so someone approached me at the door and I had practiced one phrase to say, this is for Jiro-san. And he took it, opened it up and sort of took it over to Jiro. I saw Jiro and, and his son uh, preparing for that evening behind the sushi bar, Jiro looked at it, opened it up, sort of read the letter quickly. I mean, all of two minutes, which felt like 45 in my life. <laughs> and he came back and uh, handed me back. Oh, no, he kept the, the letter and said, um, he will call. He will call. And that was all he said in English. Wow. And so I left and went about my day, which actually included a train trip to the suburbs so I could go to Ivan Ramen. Um, which at that point he was only in Japan, but this white guy had opened a ramen restaurant in Japan that was supposed to be uh, yeah. sort of the bee's knees. Um, and so I took a train out to the suburbs about 45 minutes to have ramen at Ivan Ramen, which was pretty great. And, <laughs> um, and I was walking around just to, sort of exploring the area and my, my phone rang and it was my interpreter who said, they called, you have a reservation on this day at 5.30. And I went. Um, we, we, we rescheduled rehearsal around it. Um, I put on a jacket and tie. I was so nervous. I was told by one of my, uh, one of my uh, colleagues that when you go to proper sushi restaurants, you always want to take off your watch because your watch can scrape along the bar and you don't want to insult them by, um, by damaging their their furniture so I, I and they said that that would be seen as a sign of respect in japan 
they're very, very, this happened to me a bunch, actually, where the nicer sushi restaurants don't want to let gaijin in because they just think we're a bunch of cretins who only want a California roll, which is probably true. So I was trying to do everything I could to show that I was respectful of the of the 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 place so i went in it was just me there was um a chinese man and his wife and then two japanese businessmen so there were only five of us at the bar seated for 10 people <laughs> wow um and you know it, the way it, it goes they give you a little a little menu it's you don't choose it's omakase and they yeah, but they t show you what what's going to be there for the day and uh, they have it in Japanese and in English, and they just start serving you piece by piece, one by one. Um, they notice whether you're right-handed or left-handed so that the angle is proper. Um, and the whole meal lasted about a half hour, and then you sort of go to a small table away from the bar to eat your piece of melon, which actually was a really remarkable piece of melon. Um, <laughs> and then you're out. And it felt like going to church, like to temple, like it felt religious. The wow. care and the um, the rigor of the food was, was quite remarkable. And the depths of flavor were unlike anything I'd really ever tried before. Um, the thing that was quite remarkable to me was, was the rice that he... So the way it's set up is that his son stands in the middle... And then Jiro stands to his left, and the son would cut the piece of fish, and then Jiro would form it into the nigiri. And that is the thing that is sort of the shokunin of, of it, the, like, strive for mastery. So Jiro was the only person who would touch the rice. No one else would touch that. There was lots of other hustle and bustle around, but he would form the nigiri, and I guess that was the thing, the perfect temperature of it, how much he would let it out, how um, uh, all of that stuff. Um, and, and the kind of rice that was used, there were different kinds and different temperatures for each piece of fish. So I, it, it was it was rather transcendent. And there's only been a few times where I've been sort of moved to tears by food. And that was that was one of them. Wow. I've got shivers. It's so it was really great. <laughs> But I mean, I also have, like, it was not the most fun meal I've ever had. I was very nervous. Like, when I started to pour my little glass of sake, I, I, I was shaking. My hand was shaking. Like, I spilled a little on the counter. I was so nervous. But it felt like, I don't know, like, you're invited to Picasso's private chamber to watch him paint. You know, it, like, that's what it felt like. I mean, at that point, he was 86. God knows how old he is now. Um, and, and I think he's still doing it. Yeah, well, I went and looked at their website, and there is a section of it that's in English, and it sounds like you know they're they're um, they're still there, him and his son, and they are taking reservations, but I'm sure they're impossible to get. Uh, but... I think the way you have to do it is go to Japan, book yourself into like the nicest hotel, and then that the the re concierge could make a reservation for you that's really it seems to me like that's the only way or just be an idiot and put yourself at his <laughs> mercy and then you can have a meal that will that will bring you to tears I love it and it's a spe it's such a great story and it is a, a very special story now when we actually cannot do any of those things yeah um, that's true
and I'm really grateful to you for sharing with sharing that with us and taking us to Tokyo. Says <laughs> being oh. with you with our shaking hands and our removed watches. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was it was an experience that I shall never ever forget. And and you know, on a very Melbourne note of it, the, the second or one of the three times that I've been moved to tears was was uh, at Attica in in Melbourne with Ben Truri's, um the liver tart that he did at one of the one of the first tastes when we sat down it felt like my childhood just bursting back to me like i actually understood what proust's madeleine was was all about wow um yeah that's amazing so that dish is part of a, a trio of tarts that tells the story of rip and lee where attica is based and so the the chicken liver tart um is is, is represents the Jewish part of the neighborhood or the Jewish story that threads through the neighborhood. So it is, it is a very narrative dish. Um, so yeah, really, it's really interesting. I guess it, it's, it's quite different when I think about that. And I think about that dish, that dish is a bit of a narrative and I guess sushi, that type of sushi, which is, I guess, all about what's in season and it's uh, so much about skill. It's, it's not a narrative. Is it? It's like, it's a different type of, of dining where it's 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 part of a tradition yeah it's incredibly refined and it's about just doing one thing and just going as deep as deep as deep as you can into it that's exactly right it's about doing one thing and one thing only and i think that's what's remarkable i have found about japanese restaurant culture in general is that when you're here or in the states you go to a japanese restaurant and you can sort of get lots of different things. You could get skewers and yakitori, you can get some sushi, you can get some tempura, you can get all sorts of different things. In Japan, you go to a restaurant and that's they do one thing and one thing only. So if you want to have unagi-don, you go to a restaurant that serves unagi and then from there you have one that serves it Osaka style, Kyoto style, Tokyo style, Tokyo style is steamed and then grilled. Kyoto style has is only grilled, so it's harder to do, but it's more crisp. Like there's all sorts of things. You go to a place that only serves chicken. They specialize in a chicken hot pot, and that's all they do. And the same guy has been doing it for 50 years. So that level of rigor and and precision and attempt at doing one thing and one thing really well, I think is. Um, has been certainly has been a lesson for me as I try to like not get bored doing the same thing multiple times that just precision and repetition is actually really to be respected. Yeah, it is to be respected. And when I hear about that, it makes me feel like an absolute shallow dilettante. <laughs> yes. I honestly can't imagine wanting to do just one thing, but it's just, it's so, yeah. I mean, I absolutely admire it. Um, I, I find it astounding and I'm so glad that it's there. Uh, but I just, I just don't think I can aspire to that. It takes a different kind of um, mental rigor somehow. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I just think it's part of that, that culture specifically um, to do that. Like one of the first times I was there and it's funny when I was traveling in Japan, the difference in, my experience before and after smartphones, because I was there the first time before smartphones and the second time after, and being able to Google map something and sort of follow it along 
as opposed to what they used to do before smartphones, they would fax, every hotel room had a fax machine, so a restaurant would fax you a map, and then that's how you would find out where you were going. Um, and that was not just for tourists, that was for Japanese people too. There's just no way based on their address system to figure out where you're going. So once you had a <laughs> smartphone, you would put in the phone number of the place and you could put in the, and then you would be able to plug it in on, on your Google Maps and then sort of walk there. So I, I the second time I was there, I remember walking to, I read about an uh, eel guy who had been doing eel for 40 or 50 years and that's all he did. Um, eel on rice and unaju. And so I found his place. I, I put it a little star there and then I walked and I walked and you go into sort of a laneway and then you go into between two buildings and then you go into what looks like someone's sort of backyard courtyard and then there's a sliding glass door which has no markings on it and then you open it and then there's a guy who's cooking eel and that, that's where <laughs> it is so it's a really it's a god i just i really wish everyone could find their way to to japan to eat because their their culture of food um is is quite remarkable and their rigor at doing one thing you know like in, in osaka i remember passing on my way to work every day uh, a place that had a line outside and I couldn't figure out what it was but I just sort of got in the line and went to the front and you know put my money in the machine and pressed a button and got a, a bowl of um, ramen that I later determined through my interpreter there was um, they specialize in duck ramen so everything oh. is made with duck and it was so it was like the most pure and clean and uh, um sort of umami rich broth I'd ever had like a shoyu broth not like a pork broth mm. but it was so um it was just otherworldly I, I ended up going there multiple times which is sort of a rule I have like when I'm traveling I try not to go to the same place twice even if I love it because you know there's always another new place to go to but I that one I broke that rule multiple times <laughs> wow, Daniel, it's so great to um, hear you talk about food in general and especially food in Japan. Um, anybody who hasn't seen the film, it's called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's from, I think, 2011. You can find it on Netflix and it is just, it's a really great watch. And when you watch it, if you haven't already, you will also want to go to great lengths to uh, nab one of those 10 seats at least once in your life. Um, Daniel, good luck with, oh, actually, am I allowed to say good luck? I'm probably, there's probably some theatre uh, phrase that I should use to say all the best with reopening come from away. And I can't wait to see it again. Uh, actually, so in, in the States, we would say break a leg. But in Australia, you say chukas, which I guess comes from a tradition if, if, you do well at the show, you would have enough money to buy chicken. So that's what <laughs> right. Chukas, put it in some ramen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, see you later. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.